Hey, uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name's Chris. Nice to, nice to meet you. If you'd ever like to learn more about our church or have a conversation, I'd love to have that conversation with you. So just, just let me know. And we'll set something up. Well, today is part two of a two-part series. Short one, but important one. In fact, it's a topic that I believe any church that's trying to be faithful to the Bible has got to circle back to this topic regularly. It's uh, the topic of poverty. And it's, uh, I believe this is a topic that's especially important for those of us who live in the United States, at least in most parts of the United States, to come back to. Because what's happening around the world isn't happening in our backyard the same way it's happening in other people's backyards. And for those of you who were here last week, we talked about the sheer number of kids who die per each year for, from poverty-related causes. Does anyone remember who was here last week, what that number was? i got to work on my delivery. Ten million. Ten million kids. And we broke that down. And we tried to say, okay, let's put that into perspective here. Ten million kids. We have roughly 300 people that call this church their home. If we pool up the adult, well, who come on an average Sunday. On an average Sunday, our attendance is about 300. So that's kids, that's adults, that's everybody. That's 33,000 of our churches. Ten million kids. That's 27,400 kids a day. And then this is the one, when I break it into, into this, this is the one that really gets me. If you, if you take 10 million kids, this room, the, the, the fire marshal capacity of this room is 300. So imagine we fill this room to capacity with kids. We do that not once you know, a, a day. We don't do that not twice a day. We do that not 10 times a day. We do that 91 times a day, every day, for a year. That's 10 million. And why it's important for us to circle back to this, living in the United States, is, is that if this was happening in our backyard, we'd be talking about this. I mean, imagine if this room, 91 times a day, they had funerals for 300 kids. We'd be talking about this, right? Yeah. And we'd be doing more than talk about this. We'd be saying, well, God, what would you have me to do to help? That's what we'd be doing. And so that's why we circle back to this topic from, from time to time. And each time we do, we try to look at a different scripture or we take a different emphasis or a different angle. And this time around, what we're doing is we're taking on the angle of, of busting up some myths. Last week, here's the myth that we took a look at. This myth that poverty alleviation is as simple as people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. It's not always the case, is it? Not always the case. In fact, we talked about how it's, it's, it's next to impossible to pull yourself up by the bootstraps when you don't have any boots. But instead, a lot of Americans, they believe this myth, and as a result of believing this myth, they might feel justified just sitting on the sidelines while this is happening around the world. One of the things we did last week also, we, we referenced a book. It's a great book called The Hole in Our Gospel by Richard Stearns. Fantastic book. Here's a quote from this book that we didn't read last week. We'll put it up here on the screens. And he's quoting another guy, a researcher, and here's, here's what he has to say. And now when he's talking about this poverty, he's not talking about the poverty that maybe we are a little more familiar with. He's talking about the poorest of the poor around the world. Okay, that'll help with some context here. He says, Richard Chambers, a British researcher, has said somewhat indelicately, people so close to the edge, meaning of life and death, cannot afford laziness or stupidity. They have to work, and they have to work hard whenever and however they can. Many of the lazy and stupid poor are dead. And then Richard Stearns, in his own words, says, Hey, I've found, and he's the uh, president of World Vision USA, and he's been around. He says, I've found that the poorer people are, the harder they work usually. In fact, their daily labor is more strenuous than most of us could tolerate. 
It is their circumstances that conspire to prevent their hard work from bearing fruit. As we looked at last week, many people just need a chance. Many people, that's all they need. They need a chance. And last week, we provided examples of what can happen when God's people create margin for the marginalized. So that's what we talked about last week. So here's the myth. Here's the myth we're going to deal with today. The myth we're going to deal with today is this. Poverty alleviation is as simple as people who have sharing with those who don't. Let me read that again. Poverty, this is a myth. Poverty alleviation is as simple as people who have sharing with those who don't. When you open up the Bible, you'll quickly see that Jesus clearly instructed us, feed the hungry, clothe the poor. And so some people think, well, that's all there is to poverty. Just do that. If you see somebody's hungry, give them something to eat. If you see someone that needs clothes, give them clothes. Engaging in acts of compassion, if you, if you go to the scripture, it is not optional for Christ's followers. It's not optional for us to do something. But if you believe this second myth that it's that simple, if you believe that myth, you might end up trying to help in ways that aren't helpful. Did you hear that? You know, if, if you just respond simplistically, sometimes you'll end up helping in ways that aren't helpful. Our handout's always the best way to help someone in need. There's a teaser I gave you last week, um, this picture. How many have seen this picture before, not counting last week? See this? All right, a lot of us have. This was the feel-good story of last Christmas. This picture is the, the feel-good story of last Christmas. In fact, this very photo that you're looking on the screens, it went viral last December. Well, here's the backstory. A woman named Jennifer Foster of Florence, Arizona, she was strolling near Times Square in New York City on a cold November night with her boyfriend when a couple, when that couple, came across a shoeless man asking for change. Just before Foster approached the man, she saw this police officer, Officer Larry DePrimo of the New York City Police Department. She saw him give this other man, the barefoot man, Jeffrey Hillman, a pair of all-weather boots and thermal socks. Well, Foster's the one that captured this act of generosity on her cell phone. The photo went viral. Every new major news agency put this on their homepage or front page. Every major talk show asked for an interview with the officer. But how many know the rest of the story? Just a few weeks later, Jeffrey Hillman, the barefoot man, was again wandering the streets barefoot. And the $100 pair of shoes or boots that the officer had bought him were nowhere to be seen. And that's not all. At least one other good Samaritan came forward. She claimed she purchased Mr. Hillman a pair of shoes a year ago. Reporters did some background work, and the New York Daily News reporters said that Mr. Hillman had an apartment in the Bronx, which was paid for with federal rent vouchers, other benefits. His brother, he's got a brother, and his brother was quoted as saying this, we love our brother. We love our brother very much. Our door is always open to him. This is a lifestyle he's chosen. Now, if you're getting nervous, I'm not going to go down the path of attacking Mr. Hillman because I know enough to know that things are usually more complicated than they look. They're usually much more complicated than they look. And that's exactly my point today. Poverty is complex, extremely complex. Just ask some of the people who've moved into neighborhoods where needs are really visible. I know a bunch of them. And sometimes they go in with the rose-colored glasses. I'm going to move into this neighborhood where there's lots of needs. I'm just going to start doing good, and we're going to transform this whole city block. And they get in, and a little while later, the rose-colored glasses aren't quite as rose-colored anymore as they realize this is really hard. This is really hard. It's really hard to change. 
It's really hard to change, folks. And again, that's the point I hope to drive home this morning. This morning, I hope to drive home the point that poverty alleviation, it is extremely complex. And one of the best ways we can help is to develop partnerships. One of the best ways we can help is to develop partnerships with people who know more than we do. I'm going to return to one more statement quickly that we looked at last week, and then let's open up our Bibles together. Here's the statement that we looked at. This is foundational. That's why we're going to look at it again. In the Bible, you see that God's people were called upon to establish kingdom communities. That's ultimately what the church was meant to be. They didn't have buildings and these types of things. They met in homes. The, the intent originally was to establish these kingdom communities where they would look to God as king. These people would say, okay, God is our king. And so therefore, we're going to live by God-honoring principles, what he says we're going to do. And among these principles that God gives us are the principles of hard work and generosity. Both of those things, hard work and generosity. This is also to be a, a community where we seek justice for all. And the Bible specifically spells out no favoritism. No favoritism towards the rich. No favoritism towards the poor. And then, here's another thing included in that kingdom community. You find it in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Bible says, among you, there should be no poor. Among you, there should be no poor. And then, there's some of these disclaimers that are added on here. As long as those who are, are, are folks are willing to work. Those among you are willing to work, and there should be no poverty. So what we're going to do now is we're going to focus in on that last bullet for our remaining minutes. This idea of if they don't work, they don't need principle. It's a principle that comes from a section of the Bible that we call 2 Thessalonians. If you're not familiar with the scriptures, Thessalonians, there's a 1 Thessalonians and a 2 Thessalonians. These are real first century letters. I mean, they, they date way back. They were written to real people living in a city of Thessalonica. They were trying to establish one of these kingdom communities there. In fact, the person that helped to establish that kingdom community, a man named Paul, he's the one writing this letter. So he writes 1 Thessalonians, and then he writes 2 Thessalonians. Before we open up our Bibles together to 2 Thessalonians, where that particular passage is found, I just want to show you a little bit in 1 Thessalonians. I, I had never put the dots together quite before of how persuasive this theme is in Thessalonians, this idea of, of, of really working together. Working. Hard, hard work. Um, in Paul's first letter to Thessalonians, we see some of these things. We see this is uh, out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. It says this, remember, and Paul's referring to himself and his co-workers that came and helped to establish this kingdom community. He says, remember our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. And I love that. I love that he sets the example himself with his co-workers. Instead of saying, well, here's what you should do. He sets the example. He goes, hey, we, we tried not to be a burden to any of you. And the next bullet down says this. This is out of 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 11 and 12. He says, it's, aspire now then to, to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now remember, again, he's talking to believers here. And he says, as you guys are walking, work with your hands and walk properly. Walk properly so that you're dependent on no one. So the believers are called to follow his example, this good example. And that good example involves a lot of things. One of the things it involves is being more than thankful. Being more than thankful for the generosity of others. The good example also means to work towards self-sufficiency. To be more than just thankful. Hey, thank you for giving to me. You're working towards self-sufficiency. Being able to give back yourself. 
got some great examples of that. Um, one of our members sent me an email. Uh, her name's Patty. She's very familiar. She's been in the covenant denomination a long time. And in response to the tornado, the first round of tornadoes that came through, she sent me this email. She said, hey, Chris, did you know that six of the 24 deaths in Oklahoma were people who attended covenant churches, including four of the seven children? Well, then she adds this. She says, did you also know that the National Covenant Church of India donated $2,000 to Covenant World Relief for storm victims in the United States, even though they're experiencing the worst drought in 40 years themselves. How inspiring is that? I've never been to India, but I've talked to a bunch of people who have. It's, it's a tough situation. Have any of you been? Mary has, I know. A number of you have. It, it's, you talk about poverty. And the, the covenant church there in, in India is, and they're working with the poorest of the poorest of the poor. But instead of just saying we're the recipients, they feel like we need to contribute. We need to give back. How inspiring is that? And right before I received that email from Patty, um, oh, by the way, too, I want to, I'll send out in that ECC mail that Jennifer talked about earlier, I'll send out some links if you'd like to help some of those folks in Oklahoma. I'll send out some links um, of some good resources to, to help those people. But here, before I received that email from, um, from Patty, I, I received in the mail something from Covenant World Relief. They're, they're one of the arms of our denomination that really try to help in situations where a lot of help is needed. And right at the top, they have a quote from a woman from Kenya who's in their agricultural development project. And I love what she says. She says, you've helped us rise out of poverty, and we aren't going back. I mean, isn't that the goal? The goal isn't to just give, but the goal is to help people to be able to break out of the cycle of poverty and to be able to get to a place where they can contribute. They can give, contribute of their gifts and their time and their talents. They can contribute to their own families. They can contribute to these kingdom communities. So I, I love that. How, how inspiring is that? One of the distinguishing marks of kingdom communities is they alleviate poverty in their midst. And we accomplish this not simply by giving handouts, but by helping people become contributing members of the community themselves. Well, there was one more bullet on here. I want to touch on that real quick. And it says this, it's out of 1 Thessalonians 4, starting with verse 14. Paul says this. He goes, okay, we urge you, admonish the idol. And now he's talking to believers. He's not saying go out and admonish you know, any person that you see who doesn't claim to be a follower of Jesus. He's, he's, he's talking to Christians. Admonish the idol. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. What an eye-opening passage to me. What an eye-opening passage. And this is one of the reasons why it's important for us to open our Bibles together, because here he links admonishing with good. And, and here he puts on all kinds of disclaimers. Hey, be patient with people. Encourage those who are down. All of that kind of stuff. But ultimately admonishing someone who could be contributing who isn't is a good thing. Ultimately, that is a good thing. You know, if someone in our kingdom community is without work, our goal is to help them, help them through that tough time, inspire them so they can get back on their feet, so they can honor God through their work, contribute to their family, community in positive ways. If we can admonish people to that, to that end, in all these right ways, we're doing good. That's the example we're to set, and that's the community we're to invite others into. And we can undermine that. We can undermine that witness by helping in ways that aren't helpful. If you haven't already, I encourage you to take out your notes and write this down. 
Sometimes our efforts to help aren't as helpful as we think they are. I'll say that again. Sometimes our efforts to help aren't as helpful as we think they are. In your notes, I've, I've put another resource there that I encourage you to read. In fact, if it, I could, I'd require this. If I could require you to read When Helping Hurts, I would. I can't, but I want to encourage you to. If you need a copy, we can get you a copy. It's a great book, and he really goes into these print, this, this idea of sometimes when we try to help, we're not being as helpful as we think. One of the points he makes, we'll put this up on the screen here, or the authors make, they make this point that different situations call for different responses. Different situations call for different responses. When the earthquake struck in Haiti, when they had a big devastating earthquake in Haiti, the proper response was rescue and relief. That was the proper response. People are trapped under buildings. You've got to rescue them. They need our help. People have no means of getting food, clothing, shelter. They need that, just as we would if we were in a similar situation. So the re- correct response, when there's this emergency, when there's a disaster, you send rescue, you send relief. You give the handouts because people need that right then. But over time, if you continue to just provide rescue and relief, then there's a host of unintended consequences. You know, I think of some of our partners, Ryan and Melissa Alberts down in, in Haiti. They're members of our church. They moved down to Haiti. Many of you follow their, their, their blog. Some of us had a chance to go visit them. Just ask them about all the free rice that comes from the United States. You know, this free rice comes down and, and, and floods Haiti, and now the farmers who used to grow rice, they can't sell their rice. Because how do you compete with free? Should the U.S. not send rice? Nope, it's much more complex than that. But could the distribution system be tweaked? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, last year, um, my daughter, Emma, uh, she's one of the cuties up here, you know, doing the, the song. Um, have to throw that in. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, uh, she, she said for her birthday party last year, she wanted to go to uh, Feed My Starving Children. How many of you have been to that before? Neat organization. And it was amazing how much food these little nine-year-old girls could bag in just a short period of time. Well, I'm one of these people that likes to look behind the curtain. And so I kind of found my way to the back of the warehouse, started asking a lot of questions. And one of the questions I had was about their distribution system. I said, how do you get the food to the people that need the food? And this one guy, he was very open, and he just, he, he, basically it's through partners. They have partners that they get the food to, and then the partners distribute the food. Well, he was telling about one of the partners, one of the partners in Haiti. And what that partner does is they load the food up on a truck. When it comes in, they drive the truck to the edge of some woods, and women and children come out of the woods. They take the food, and they go back to the villages. And he said that was working great until the thugs started to show up. And the thugs showed up, and then the thugs would steal all the food. So what did this organization do to try to solve the problem? They hired thugs of their own. And so then when they distribute the food, their thugs fought off the other thugs, so the people get their food. Well, I'm thinking in my head, what a stupid... I didn't say this to the guy, but I'm thinking in my head, what a stupid system. What is, because what are the thugs, the other thugs, going to do? They're just going to go into the woods and get the food there. And the reason I can say this is stupid, with, with the ignorance that I have, the reason I can say this is stupid, because I've been to Haiti, here's a picture from my phone of Feed My Starving Children food, and there were no thugs. And it wasn't because Mary and I were scaring them off. Here's the, here, this is Feed My Starving Children rice with, with eggs and vegetables, and it's being presented to, to these women. And there were no thugs. And this is in the middle of Port-au-Prince, 
very dangerous city where there's lots of theft, lots of fuggery, no thugs. They were able to find out a way to not only get the food to the people that needed food. These were expectant moms or new moms. They also were helping to train those moms with skills they could apply in their homes. And they could also use to earn an income so they could begin to buy their own food and sustain their own families. It's possible. It's hard. It's complex. But it's possible. And when we were in Haiti, we got a chance to see some folks up in the mountains. Some of you have heard us talk about these before, but I think it fits in really well here. Just pause here for a second. We went up to the mountains, and in the mountains of Haiti, you're isolated now. And not only that, most of the mountains had just been devastated through deforestation. But we found this oasis. John and Joy Thomas, these two people, we've had them share here before. They just went up to this area, and they said, God, what would you have us to do? And when we were there, they had, by this time, they had seven schools. This is one of their schools. Seven schools with seven churches, seven little kingdom communities where these kids were getting a fantastic education. There's one of the schools. Here's another one. This one blew me away. This is one of the finest schools in Haiti. It's in the middle of nowhere. No, middle of nowhere. No, this, this beautiful, here's a shot inside. These kids, in fact, it's one of the only schools in Haiti, at least it was when we were there, one of the only schools in Haiti is where kindergartners are with kindergartners, first graders are with first graders, second graders are with second graders. And this is an incredibly poor area. But they figured out, how do we do this? And the way they did it, they raised the bar. Those kids had to find a way to get those uniforms. Those kids had to be there, not on the first day of first grade. They had to be there the first day of kindergarten. Or they don't get to be a sixth grader there. The bar was high. And these people, it was just high enough so they could make it, but high enough to make them stretch. So that there wasn't a sense of, I just get this, but, I, but I've earned this. It was amazing. And beyond that, here's some other real quick things. This is a picture of charcoal. That's one of the cash crops. One of the reasons that it was deforested is people would cut down all the trees to make charcoal, which they would sell. Well, they introduced a, a tree so that the charcoal guys could have this tree that when you cut it down, another tree grew from that same stump. How amazing is that? Here's another picture. This is a crop that's happening. You talk about sustainability. The water is getting pumped up from the river. They're teaching them all these, oh, can we go back to the, the, the crop there? And they're, they're teaching them how to rotate these crops so that these farmers can become self-sufficient. And then this is the last one. I want to show you this. This is fun. There, there's barely any electricity up there in the mountains. The only people that have electricity have a generator. And these guys have a generator. And they turn it on during the day. They turn it off at night. What you see here are a whole lot of people who plugged in their cell phones. Cell phones are extremely cheap. Electricity isn't. So a lot of people have cell phones. And what they do is during the day, they'll, they'll come, they'll plug in their cell phones here, there. There's no locks, no, no doors. And I was blown away because I'm thinking, I live just two miles from here. If I plugged my cell phone in outside in an unlocked spot, my cell phone wouldn't be there in the morning. This is unlocked. This is people just come. That's what they've done in this neighborhood. It's their neighborhood. They've created this culture in the middle of a very desperate place. Here's the last picture I want to show you. I mean, it felt like, it felt like we were in the tropical paradise. We walked around. We, we, did you, dear Mary, did you feel any danger at all when we walked around up in the hills and all over? And there weren't people coming up and begging or anything like that. In fact, the one person, of all the people we saw, one person said some joke about money. Joy laid into her. She's like, we don't do that in our neighborhood. We don't ask for handouts in our is it possible? Yes. It's possible for whole areas to be transformed. Is it easy? No. That's why 
this myth we're dealing with today is that poverty alleviation, it's not, it, it, it's not, it is rocket science. Poverty alleviation is rocket science. And a lot of people think it's not. That's, that's the myth. That's the myth. Now, the kind of community that, the, that, that God introduced, I mean, it was revolutionary. There was really nobody who cared for people like that. There was no, no safety nets like the ones that the church now was providing. Nobody cared for the poor, the widows, the orphans, the strangers like the early Christians. And I believe one of the reasons why Paul was doing this teaching, which we see in 1 Thessalonians, we see in 2 Thessalonians, is because now we have to get some principles. Because now, for the first time, dependency among the poor was possible. For the first time, it was possible. It was never possible before. Now it was possible. So I believe this teaching comes to say, hey guys, you're going to have this new issue. Here's how we avoid that. So now there's the preamble. Let's open up our Bibles together if we haven't already. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Now one of the reasons I want to have you open it up today, and before, before I go any further, I want to let you know too, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one free today. Um, we have one right there in the back. Just please take it. Nothing to sign. It's a gift. You don't have to feel about dependency or anything like that. Just, just take it. We, we would love for you. It's a gift. All right? Um, so, but one of the reasons I want to have you open to this is I want you to look. Second Thessalonians is a really short letter. And we're going to look at this section that's talking about idleness. Look how big this section is in this letter. So this is an important teaching. Important teaching. Let me just, let me just read it without commentary. This is out of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3, starting with verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and into Christ's perseverance. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, Christians, we command you, keep away from every believer who's idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked day and night, laboring, toiling, that we may not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we did not have the right for such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy, they're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ, settle down, earn the food that they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Do not regard them, though, as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Wow. Well, how do you apply a teaching like this? How do you move beyond handouts? I believe you respond the way they did, through partnerships. Develop partnerships. I encourage you to write this down if you haven't already in your notes. Great partners can help you help others more effectively. Say it again. Great partners can help you help others more effectively. The early church realized every person was gifted by God and had something to contribute. Every person. Every person was gifted by God and has something to contribute. So they pool their talents, they pool their resources, and they delegated different tasks to different people, including the distribution of food. You could read Acts 6. 
You could read Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12. You see all these precedents where everyone contributes somehow as they're able, as God has gifted them to do. And so in response to poverty, if you're a Christian, the spirit within you is going to compel you to do something. It's going to compel you to do something. And you may have enough time and enough money to help everyone that asks for help and enough knowledge. I don't. Anyone else not have enough time or money to help everyone who asks you? A couple of us? Really, the rest of you that... You're, you're up. Take it. Take everything. You know, but the rest of us that don't. But we want to be great stewards, right? You know, you want to be a great steward. When I give money, I want it to help. If I give my time, I want it to make a difference. And so how do we be good stewards of what we do have? Well, we find partners who can help us. I don't know how to meet all the needs around the world. Internationally, I'm very unequipped for that. But we've got a great partner in Covenant World Relief who has partnerships in all kinds of countries who know so much more than we do. And we can give our time, we can give our talents, we can give finances, and, and we can work with them. Our partner in Juarez, Emmanuel Children's Home, are doing a great job of helping kids down there. They know more than we do. They live there. And we can come in with our ideas, but when we come with our ideas, we come, we come as humbly. You know, We don't come as here. We are the ones who have. You have not. Let us bless you. We come and say, well, here's what we have, and here's what you have, and how can God use this? So internationally, that, you work with your partners. That's one of the ways you can help. In the city. You know, I, I'm not well-equipped to help people in Minneapolis, but we got Ace in the city. You know, Tim lives there. Ashley lives there. And they're trying to network with other folks who live there. They're reaching out to their neighbors, and they're much better positioned to know how to really help. You know, over time, is it, they're going to know, oh, that's Joe. You know, that's so-and-so. They know their situation. They know their story. They're going to be in a better position to help us help others. You know, back in the day, that was the job of the church. Back in the day, because the church were the only people doing this, where would you bring people? You'd, you'd say, well, here's the church in your city. Let's bring you there, and they'll know best what to do. It's much more complicated than that in today's world, and, and especially in our country. So we try to find partners that we can trust, that we can, we can lean into, and it can help. I'm a huge, huge advocate for developing partnerships with people who are much more knowledgeable than we are. And I would have been tempted to just end right there and encourage you to go find those partners. But it would be, pal- it would be pastoral malpractice for us not to at least touch on this last point. I encourage you to write this down. It would be pastoral malpractice for me not to say this. It is not Christianese. It would be pastoral malpractice. And that is this true statement. The Holy Spirit is the most important partner of all. I don't say that to sound churchy. I say that with deep conviction. The Holy Spirit is the most important partner of all. And it, it, this is not something that's just instant, easy. This is, this is lifetime of learning to hear voice of the Spirit, to be led by the, the, the promptings of the Holy Spirit, but it's absolutely essential. When Jesus walked the earth, when Jesus was, was among us, Jesus always knew what to say. He always knew what to do. He, he promised to send his followers a counselor, an advocate, a helping presence known as the Holy Spirit. And here's why this is so vital. There will be times where the Holy Spirit invites you or leads you to do something that appears absolutely foolish. There will be times where the Holy Spirit may lead you to just, someone's asking for money, you just give them, to, give them the money. 
Because for somebody, if the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit knows things, we don't know. The Holy Spirit might know that that person, that movie Les, Les Mis, based on the play, based on the book, am I getting that right? Where, where that priest basically gives away these silver candlesticks to this thief, you may be asked to do something like that because the Holy Spirit knows for that person, that's the transformational moment. That's the catalyst. There might be times the Holy Spirit does that. There might be times the Holy Spirit encourages you to give foolishly because it's not that person even that you're trying to help. It's someone else who's watching you. Jesus himself said, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and praise who? Your Father who's in heaven. And there's times where we're asked to do that, to just be generous because it's going to set a good example. So sometimes that's why it's so important to be in touch with the Holy Spirit because sometimes the Holy Spirit will have you do principles that just aren't, at least in your head, the most logical. But there are other times where the Holy Spirit, and this is my default. I always call it, with my life, I say default to Proverbs, which just means do the wise thing. If you don't know what the Holy Spirit's saying, do the wise thing. All right? God will be glad. Just do the wise thing if you're not sure. But often the Holy Spirit will just tell you to do the wise thing. Do the wise thing. Work through one of these partners. Do that type of deal. But that's why it's so important. And, and even beyond that, even beyond in the moment knowing what to do, the Holy Spirit helps you find partners. The Holy Spirit linked me up with that children's home when I was a 16-year-old in Juarez. You know, and now 50 of our people are sponsoring kids there, and we're doing that at a time when they needed. The Holy Spirit knew war was going to break out in Juarez long before it ever happened, and to have one more partner in there. You know, the Holy Spirit knows you do it. The Holy Spirit can help you find partners. Sometimes you're going to you're going to have this divine meeting with somebody, and you'll just get to know them, and all of a sudden, next month, this is why. Now I can connect that person to this person. The Holy Spirit helps you find partners. The Holy Spirit equips those who are partners. Did you hear that? The Holy Spirit equips those who are partners. And the same Spirit, the same Spirit that gave rise to the birth of the church is the same Spirit that lives and dwells in believers. So here's the last question I have for you. Is the Spirit of Christ alive in you? Alive in you? And I'm not asking you from some doctrinal stance to say, well, according to this verse, then it is because of the... Is the Holy Spirit alive in you? Then, then today, here's an invitation to seek that. Does God want that for you? Yes. Pray according to his will, it'll be done. Okay. What would God have us to do that the Spirit might become alive? Is, is there something that you're doing that's blatant disobedience? Possibly that's, that's hindering the work of the Spirit in you. The Bible says, do not quench the Spirit. Are you resisting God's activity? Are you not seeking? Are you, are you, are you avoiding His Word? You know, I, today would be a great opportunity to come back and say, Holy Spirit, would you become more alive in me? Would you teach me how that could be stirred up? You know, how I could hear you and feel you and, and, and be led by you. What a great day for that. And for others, you might be saying, well, I, all right, I'm not, I'm not even there. I'm not, I'm not even to the, I don't know about God peace. Well, what a great day for you, too. There might be something stirring inside you, and I, I would say it's the Holy Spirit that, that's stirring within you to say, you know, I have a lot of questions, but something's compelling me to put my trust in this God. You know? Well, here's the thing I want to say about that. How, how do you enter into a partnership with God? A partnership with God isn't a partnership among equals. I'm learning this more and more, and I have to just say it without apology. A partnership with God is not a partnership among equals. It's a partnership where you just come and, and you say, I come to you, God, on your terms. 
That's a partnership with God. You come to him on your terms. And part of the beauty of that is his terms involve amazing grace. His terms, God's terms, involve just this this scandalous grace where the God of all creation reaches out to sinners and people who've rejected him and people who've mocked him and people who've gone the, the other way. He reaches out and says, I'm willing to die for you. And he did. One of the most popular verses in the whole Bible is popular for a reason. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have every, everlasting life. So part of what does it mean to come on God in his terms? It means to come on amazing grace. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. You just come. But then there's the responding piece. What does that mean? You know, it means to say yes to all. It means to come to God in his terms. Say, God, okay, I'm here. Yes to all. What you say, I'll do. Or you lead, I'll follow. And there's a lifetime of learning how to do that. But that's what it ultimately comes down to. Yes to all. I'll receive your amazing grace. And then whatever you ask of me, my life is now yours. So we want to give you that opportunity today. And I do want to say one more thing um, real quick. If, if you've got a stumbling block that, that's in your way, we'd love to try to help with that as best we can. If you've got something where you're like, I, here's what's keeping me from saying yes to all. We'd love to talk with you if, if a conversation might be helpful. We'd love that. But for those who feel like, you know what, I want to respond, either for the first time or I want to respond to someone that's coming back and saying, today, once again, God, it's yes to all, then what a great opportunity as we celebrate Holy Communion. And at this time, I want to have the worship band come up, and I'll explain just a little bit about this. Um, communion is just a relationship word. It just means to be in intimate union with somebody. And Holy Communion is a special set-apart type of communion where we say yes to all to God. We, we pause, we remember that amazing grace, and then we say, God, here I am. I want to remember what Jesus did and who he was and, and what he calls us to. And so we won't have any ushers here today, but what we will do is we'll pray together, and then we'll invite you, if you'd like to say yes to all, to come forward today and receive. We'll have uh, two people will be over there, two people will be over here. And again, there won't be ushers telling you when, just come on up. So give us a chance to get into place, and, uh, and then we'd invite you forward. So let's, let's pray. and let's, We have some prayers that we can all pray together, and then, I, and then make this your own. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. We confess that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We are not worthy for these gifts which we are about to receive, but say the word and we will be made clean. Let me pray for Father, we pray now that you take this time and make it holy, make it set apart. We pray, Lord, that you would cast out all thoughts that are not of you so that we could hear your voice with greater clarity. Lord, I pray for um, those who, who have a stirring. It might feel like the stirring is in their head. It might feel like the stirring is in their heart. But Lord, I pray for those that have a stirring that they should either come back or should come to you. Lord, I pray that they can see you for who you are. This God of amazing grace who initiates this relationship. 
I pray also, Lord, that we could all see you in your majesty as the creator of the entire world who knows so much more than we do, who can be trusted so that we could follow you with full confidence that you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life. So, Lord, make this holy. Take this bread, this juice. Make it holy. Take this moment. Our, our, our actions, our, our fallible actions of, of even coming forward, of all our baggage and all the things that we just can't shake, make it holy that we may serve you. And now as one last act of solidarity. Let's pray a prayer that Jesus taught his followers to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.